I am going to be reading from John 1, verses 1 through 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He was, you know, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in the name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, enjoying the last uh, remnants of summer, enjoying this nice holiday weekend, staying cool somehow. And uh, okay, so here, as we are uh, tying up the summer weeks, we're also tying up our summer sermon series today. Uh, if you haven't been with us throughout the summer, uh, over the summer, we've been doing something a little different than we normally do. We normally just work our way through a book of the Bible. Uh, but over the summer, we've put that on pause and we've been addressing some of the, uh, just the key questions that... Maybe people who are curious about Christianity, people who are on the outside, who might be asking in relation to Christianity, or more in particular, we've been looking at some of the major objections that often stand in the way of people entrusting their life in faith uh, to Christ, right? And we've been doing that because we uh, we want this to be a place uh, where you can genuinely come and ask your questions and feel like they're, they're treated genuinely and you get careful, honest answers. Uh, we're doing that so that we... Two, here, all of us uh, might know more fully why it is that we believe what we believe, uh, and also just so that we can be better equipped to engage in conversations as representatives of Christ in the places that he sends us, right? So we've been doing that, and uh, as I was thinking and praying about how to close this series up, I had a couple questions that I thought maybe we could venture down, but at the end of the day, I kept coming back to wanting to circle back to where we started with this whole question series and just kind of like review some of the basic underlying things that we've talked about over these past couple weeks, months. I always appreciated it in college and seminary when the last class of the semester was a review class that set you up for the exam that was coming. That was always very helpful for me. And so uh, I'm feeling like, all right, as we're closing this up, we're just going to kind of review. We're going to go back to where we started. And then you can all pick up your take-home exam on the way out. That's a joke. There's no, there's no exam, unless I ask you, might ask you questions on the way out. Anyway, so what we're going to do, if you remember, several weeks back, we, we started this whole series in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and we were in chapter 6, and there was this line at the end of the passage, where just point blank, Paul says, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Okay, and we talked about how that one line there, that you are not your own, that very well might be one of the more offensive lines in all of Scripture in our modern American culture. Okay? Right? Because in our modern American culture, especially among emerging generations, you know, the younger generations, one of the most sacred 
values, one of the most sacred things in all of life is the freedom of the individual self, right? And one of the deepest held convictions of our modern American culture is that, no, actually, my life does belong to me, and I am my own, and I have this right and this liberty to live my life on my own terms as I see fit. In fact, the life that is best lived, a life that is most true and authentic, a life that is most meaningful and satisfying, is going to be a life that is lived precisely not in conformity to any other standard or any other tradition or any other system of morality. Basically, you need to understand who you are and you live to need, and you need to live freely and authentically as you. You need to do you. I need to do me, right? That is the, one of the core sacred values and core convictions of our modern culture, right? And if that's the case, if that is one of the core sacred values and core convictions of our culture, right, our culture is rightly going to have all sorts of questions uh, for certainly a religious system that would dare to say, no, you are not your own, and that you were bought with a price, and you were made by design, and your best life is lived in conformity to something outside of you, Right? And we saw this as we were working through the questions. Right? Some of the questions all just kind of grow out of this, right? Is Christianity a straitjacket? Isn't Christianity an enemy to personal freedom? That was our question week one. Or isn't Christianity just another one of those failed institutions that just seeks to use me for its own personal gain? That was week two. Or isn't Christianity uh, oppressive towards women in their leadership structures or in their stance against their right to choose with, uh, you know, whatever they want to do with their own bodies? Or isn't Christianity anti the LGBTQ community who is just trying to live truthfully and authentically as themselves and just trying to understand themselves and live that out as best as they can? Isn't Christianity opposed to all this? Can you see how, or at least what has stood out to me as we were looking at this series of questions this summer, maybe in a little bit of a distinction from the questions we looked at last summer, the questions for me kept coming back to this core idea that, no, my life is my own, and the life that is best lived most freely and most authentically, most meaningfully, most satisfying is a life that is lived on my own terms, not in conformity to any structure, tradition, or system out there. And so if that's the case, right, if that is the underlying principle, I thought it'd be good to circle back around on that. And for anybody who might be searching, who might be wrestling, who might be asking questions about Christ, maybe that's the fundamental thing that you need to wrestle with. And so we're going to circle back around on that, see how the Bible speaks into that one more time. I also wanted to circle back around on it too, because, hey, if you've grown up in the church or you've been a lifelong follower of Jesus and, you know, you don't, you wouldn't ever voice that, that my life is my own and I should live it on my own terms. Yet, uh, it's part of the air that we breathe. Or it's part of the current, the cultural current that we're all caught up in. Right? It's like that David Foster Wallace story that he told one time when two fish were traveling in a stream passing each other. The one fish says to the other, my, isn't the water lovely today? And the other fish says, what's water? 
Right? It's that idea that sometimes we get caught up in these currents and we don't even realize it, we don't even understand it, but it's part of the air that we breathe. And so even though we might never confess that creed or that sacred value yet, there very well might be ways that that value and that conviction is weaving its way through our lives individually and together as a church. I think you sometimes see this uh, in, in churches that maybe have forgotten about their mission and their purpose together. That maybe forgotten that they have a calling and they have a mission that they've been called to as part of the kingdom of Christ, right? And sometimes we get so caught up in this life that is supposed to live on our terms in pursuit of our own goals and dreams, we, you know, we just can go days or weeks or months or maybe even years forgetting that actually <laughs> my life has an even greater purpose to that. My life ought to be lived in service to the mission of Christ and his kingdom. And I need to be exploring what that looks like more in my life. I don't know, maybe you see it in churches that, I don't know, are always looking to throw off history <laughs> and tradition, right, in favor of living, living out more newer and more authentic expressions of faith and worship together. Churches that want to worship in their gym instead of the sanctuary, for goodness gracious. Again, another joke. <laughs> I know somebody's going to probably throw something at me here. <laughs> or maybe you see it, uh, you know, in churches that on the other end of things, maybe are so hardened to the possibility of change and, and struggle to, you know, reflect the diversity of the kingdom of Christ, right? Because we're so accustomed and we're so comfortable to the way we do life and worship and mission together, and that to change that might be just a little awkward, uncomfortable, and I don't want to sacrifice, and then perhaps in the name of being more hospitable or more open or welcoming or integrating of the broader diversity that's out there within relation to the body of Christ. Or maybe you see it in churches where there's conflict and people just naturally think, well, it's right and good to just cling to my rights and what I deserve and what I'm entitled to and fair treatment as opposed to clinging to the one who willingly laid his life on the altar so that we could be delivered and be set free and be a part of a wonderful family. Right, again... It's always good for us to carefully take inventory and make sure that the currents of the broader culture, even though we wouldn't confess it, aren't infiltrating and influencing the way we do life individually and together as a church. So that's another reason we're circling back. Maybe the last reason we're also circling back is more of a, just a pastoral concern. And maybe this is the concern that I have because I'm a father now of three, well, two and one soon-to-be teenage daughters who are growing up in a world where this is the sacred value and this is the overriding conviction. One of my deepest fears for them is that they would ever adopt this principle, this that the most sacred thing is my autonomous self and my freedom to live life on my own terms, and that they would ever be convicted that the pathway to meaningful life is that I don't live in conformity to anything outside of myself. And actually, there's a whole lot of voices uh, in our broader culture that are starting to say, you know what, we, we think we're starting to see some cracks in this worldview, in this life that we've constructed as a culture together. I was just reading this article in the New Atlantic, uh, New Atlantis by Heather Zeger, who I think is a scientific researcher down in Texas. And the article was actually written back in 2019, before the world evolved into pandemic and just got all crazy and whatnot. 
You know, and she's writing and pointing out how at that time, the thing that we were most worried about, the epidemic we were most worried about was the opioid crisis that was taking place, uh, you know, all around us. And she's saying, you know, that's good. But it's curious to me, she says, that nobody is talking about, nobody is concerned about this other addiction out there that people seem to be having to tranquilizers. She's writing about, you know, our nation's addiction to, what do they call benzodiazepines? I don't know, somebody, some nurse can, can correct me on that, right? Or, or more commonly, medication used to treat anxiety, right? And she's saying, hey, nobody is talking about this fact that over the past century, right, the anxiety rates of adults have been increasing very steadily such that now one in five adults in any given year are going to experience what is normally considered um, an anxiety disorder. And one in 20 now is going to be on one of these benzodiazepines or these anti-anxiety medications. Or she says, nobody's talking about the fact, however, just in the recent decades, the anxiety level of teenagers is going through the roof. And she said, I'm curious why nobody is talking about this epidemic. And she says, I wonder if it's because we have just come to assume that anxiety is just a part of life in the modern world. And she's saying, you know, historically, that's, that's not always been the case. You know, our forefathers for generations and generations before this were much more equipped of dealing with the anxious parts of life. Or you look at other cultures around the world, they deal with anxiety differently. She's saying, it's almost as if somehow we have constructed a world and a life that is unfit for us to live in and enjoy fully. And she identifies a couple of things. She identifies in American culture, uh, we have this you know, overachieving mentality. We are hard workers who strive for accomplishment and success. And then there's this other thing where we hold in the highest esteem the autonomy of the individual self, which basically means you are on your own to figure out what accomplishment and success means for you, and you are on your own to figure out the pathway to accomplishing that. And you put those things together, and it's like this toxic combination that leads to this heavy burden, this wearisomeness, and this rapid increase in anxiety, especially in the younger generations. Or you could look at people, you could read all sorts of people who would point to also the epidemic of guilt and shame. And they would say, yeah, you know, in this culture where you set your own values, your own ideals, your own pathways to life, the other thing is that you're your own judge or you're your own justifier. You're the only one who can then look at your life and determine if it was a life well lived or a life full of meaning. And the thing is, we're often our worst critics. That the old biblical Pharisees hold nothing on us, that we can hold ourselves to an even higher standard, and when we don't meet that standard, man, it's crushing with guilt and shame. Or on and on we could go. You could look at the people who talk about, you know, our addictions to anything that will distract us or numb us from the anxiety and from the guilt and the shame of this life that we've constructed. All to say that's possible. This life that we have built under the sacred value of radical autonomy of the self and this conviction I have to live life on my own terms, that might actually be a life that is unfit for us. Or they might say, actually, at the end of the day, we're not as free as we think we are. And the master that we have chained ourselves to is a much more cruel master than the ones from generations past. 
So I'm concerned about that for my kids. I'm concerned about that for us as a congregation. And so it's that. It's making sure that these currents of culture aren't influencing us too much. And it's that this is just the dominant question people have that just leads me one last time to take one more stab at it through John chapter 1, this glorious prologue to some of the key themes in the book of John, this glorious prologue really to the dominant themes throughout the rest of the New Testament. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in it. I just want to highlight a few things, some of the core things that he's bringing out here. I want to highlight the radical uniqueness of the Christian faith that he's mentioning here. And I just want to make you sure that you hear one last time this glorious invitation that he is holding before you. Okay. So in the beginning, says John, was the word. The word was with God and the word was God and all things were made through him. Uh, at this point, John is sort of casting a wide net. Anybody who's listening, anybody who's hearing in the ancient world could have been right in with him here. Certainly if you're an Israelite and you've grown up reading your Old Testament, you know, you've read and you know that the word of God has power. By the word of the Lord, says the psalmist, the heavens and all their starry hosts were created. You remember the prophet Isaiah who says, the grass withers and the flowers fade. Peoples die, empires fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Isaiah also says, you know, when he's, you know, trying to instill hope in the exilic community of the, of the, uh, the community of the exiles in Israel, he's reminding them that the word of God can bring life and healing and hope. And he reminds them that the word of God, as it ascends out, that never returns void because it has power. And so, yeah, any Jewish listener at this point would say, yeah, of course, the word of God spoke the cosmos into existence. I mean, okay, but here's the thing. Even if you're a pagan philosopher at this point, you're listening to this. Maybe if you're a Stoic or you're a Platonist, right? You're kind of jiving with what John's saying here a little bit as well, too, because you have this general concept. Well, he's using this idea of the word, which in Greek is the word logos. And ancient pagan philosophers also believed in this vague logos, which was sort of like this principle of... I don't know, rationality or wisdom that undergirds all of the cosmos and all of creation and holds all of creation together such that if you can get your life in touch with and in tune with this logos, this principle of rationality, wow, now then your life is really going to hum and your life is going to be full of meaning and purpose. Okay, but so John, that's what John does, right? He says, yeah, okay, so this word... It's not just this abstract principle of rationality or truth out there, but this word is a person. In him were all things created. In other words, John is holding out there that, okay, access to truth or access to this underlying principle of that governs creation in the cosmos and holds all things together. It's about engaging in relationship with a person. In him was life, said John, and that life was the light of men. Uh, I, I love the book of John. In fact, I'm, I'm, so, I'm tempted. We're going to go back into the book of Revelation, finish the second half of Revelation here when we get back in October 
in just a couple of weeks. And when that's done, man, I'm so tempted to go into the book of John because he's got just such wonderful themes throughout his book. And one of those themes is this theme of life to the full. Like I almost get the sense that John was a hedonist, that he was just, well, just like you and I, that he's on this quest for life to the full, life that is rich and satisfying. And he finds this in Jesus. In fact, he's the one that quotes Jesus in chapter 10 of saying, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? You know, and I think sometimes Christianity gets a bad rap and that we're only known for the things that we stand opposed to, right? Isn't Christianity oppressive towards women? Isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQ? Isn't Christianity enemy of personal freedom, right? All these things. Because oftentimes those are the, that's the stuff that's heard loudest in our broader culture, and I understand that. But at its root and its core, like... There's this commonality with the human quest, right? We are all in search of life to the full, life that is meaningful and satisfying and good. And this is exactly what Jesus says. This is why I've come, that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. Right? So in him was light, and that light was the life of men. And that light, says John, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You remember going all the way back to, you know, the beginning. And we've talked about this creation story a couple of ways, a couple of times as we've been working our way through this series, right? And we've talked about how, you know, how does the beginning of that creation story unfold? It's God stepping into not just a blank slate even, but he's stepping into this world that is chaotic and barren, right? Those Hebrew roots, tohu and bohu, chaotic and barren. And darkness was over the face of the deep, says the first chapter in Genesis, right? But God speaks, and he scatters the darkness, and he speaks some more, and he restrains, and he orders the chaos so that the good habitats can appear, and he speaks some more, and it just floods these habitats now with life, with rich, abundant life, right? So here he's saying, ah, this word again has appeared to us. And this word brings light, which is the life of men, and it shines in the darkness. And just as in the original creation, the darkness couldn't overcome it, so now as that life shines in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. You know, and so, just pause. Again, if you are searching, and you're curious about Christianity, and you're questioning, it's almost like, one of the more fundamental questions that you have to ask yourself, and I think once one of the fundamental questions that John or all the writers of Scripture would ask you is, okay, well, they might not ask you because it's a different world that they lived in, but one of the fundamental questions you need to wrestle with is at the end of the day, am I a creation of or am I a product of? I think Andrew was highlighting this, you know, when he was talking about, you know, our, our, our science question. And at the end of the day, am I a product of random, unguided, natural processes? Am I a creation? Am I a product of these random, natural, unguided chemical reactions and evolutionary processes? Or am I a product and a creation of a creator who very well might use all these natural processes or whatever? But am I a product of a creator who has a purpose, who has a design, who has a plan? Right. That's one of the most fundamental questions that all of us have to ask because the implications are pretty significant, right? Right. If I'm just a product of natural 
chemical reactions and chemical processes, well, then the pathway to the good life is understanding, I don't know, the makeup and the natural limitations of the human body, understanding how those natural processes work in me, and just trying to live into that as best as I can. Okay, but if I'm a result of the purpose and the plan and the wisdom of a creator who himself is good and wise and loving, well, now... The pathway to life to the full is understanding his purpose and understanding who he is and understanding what he's all about and living into that. And what John is saying here is that this Jesus is the full and final revealing revelation of this creator God, that he was God himself. He's echoing all the other New Testament writers themselves, like the passage Andrew preached from, Colossians 1. It says Jesus was the image of the invisible God in all things. We're created through him. All things, whether on heaven or earth, visible or invisible, whether we're rulers and authorities or thrones and powers, all things were created by him and for him. The writer of the book of Hebrews, right, as he's writing to you know, new Christians who are tempted to revert back to old ways of thinking, right? He reminds them, I mean, in days past, God spoke to us by the prophets, but in In these latter days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the radiance of his glory, who is the exact imprint of his nature, who has created all things and who upholds all things. Again, the fundamental question you need to ask, (laughs) am I a product of natural unguided processes or am I a product of a creator? And if I am, the pathway to the good life is to know him, to know his life, and to know his light as revealed through Christ. Okay, but, says John, we got a problem. And we've talked about this throughout the summer. Uh, the great tragedy in the creation story is that these people that God made in his image, these people that God charged to carry on his work of restraining the darkness, restraining the chaos, instead they let it in. And they start to prefer the darkness, and they start to prefer the forces of chaos, and so they align themselves with them. And so that's what John's saying here. The true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, even his own people, and they did not receive him. Right? Floundering around in the darkness, we don't even recognize the true light when it comes. Or, as John would later say, light is broken in the world, but men preferred the darkness. We're not only floundering around in the darkness trying to find pathways to life, but we're actually preferring the darkness, and we're deluded into thinking that the darkness is actually the pathway to life to the full. And so here comes the light into the world, and the world doesn't recognize them. And the world has very little time or interest. But, says John, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, Or more specifically there, the translation probably should read, those who are believing. It's an active participle there. Those who are believing, and it's the Greek word, into his name. Those who are believing into his name, or those who are entrusting their lives, really, to him and to his name, he's giving the rights and the privileges of being children of God. You know, and that little line there, giving the rights and privileges of being children of God, man, that's a, that's a 
broad thing. That doesn't just mean that, oh, now you're special people that God looks at and he loves and he cherishes and you're part of that. No, it's much bigger than that. Like I think a little George and Jeffrey, our two youngest, who if ever the courts get their acting gear, will officially legally become a part of the Sussex family, right? And when they do, it won't just be, okay, well, now we love them because they're a part of, right? They become part of this, you know, great program. I like to think it's a great program, right? Right? They become a part of a much broader family of grandparents who are going to dote on them and give them candy every time they come and get them all hyper and wound up. Or they become a part of a broader family where there's cousins who are going to ride bikes and play with them, you know, all the time. Or they become a part of summer trips down to Ocean City or camping trips up to Maine. Or they become a part of this family that has this weird obsession with cheesesteaks and spending long hours smoking pork butts on a barbecue, as Jeffrey would like to call them. Right? You're becoming much part, part of this bigger operation. And that's the picture here. Right? To those who are entrusting themselves to the name of Christ, who are believing into him, God is giving the rights, the full rights and privileges, the full inheritance, this whole great program, right? They're being restored in relationship with their creator. They're being brought back into this wonderful family, this wonderful community of the spirit. They're being drawn up back in into God's dream for his creation, the dream that was marred when sin and evil and darkness, you know, crept back in, right? This plan for life and resurrection and new creation, right? They're being brought into all of that. Those who are entrusting their life into Christ, being given all the rights and privileges of sons and daughters. And he goes on to say, and this is maybe the last point I want to highlight, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. In verse 14, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. And as Eugene Peterson says it in his uh, version, uh, the, the Message Bible, this word took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And we have all beheld his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? And here it is, highlighting some of this radical uniquenesses of the Christian faith. This radical uniqueness over, uh, you know, that stands in contradiction, not contradiction, but to stand out uniquely from every other religious system out there that, that this God actually has such wild concern and such wild compassion for his people that he would humble himself to take on human flesh. That's unheard of certainly among the ancient gods, and I assume among more of the modern gods as well, too. Or that this God would so debase himself by taking on created human flesh and actually taking on in his flesh all the ailments and the sicknesses and the disease and the cursedness that was plaguing his people. That's just unheard of. It's this radical uniqueness. And right, the other uniqueness that's hopefully any follower of Jesus is fully aware of and I'm always thankful for, is at the end of the day, it wasn't me that worked my way up back into the good graces of my creator. It was my creator who in mercy and compassion on my miserable condition brought himself low and entered into my neighborhood and entered into my life so that he might remake me and draw me back into his life, right? Christianity stands unique 
And other religious systems that certainly stand unique in other secular worldviews as well, too, where the whole name of the game is, right? If you want to attain to the good life, you got to pick yourself up by the good, by your bootstraps. You better hope that you have some creativity and natural ingenuity, and you better hope that you can work long and hard to get there. Man, here's this incredible news that, well, actually, the pathway to life that is meaningful and rich and full is actually just to humble yourself and to open yourselves, and to receive this Jesus who has entered your neighborhood and come to you in your time of need. Which gets us to these last final words where we have beheld his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? And you need them both. Right? Pathway to the life that is rich, meaningful, and to the full is the pathway through Jesus and his truth. Right? Again, for John, truth is not just this abstract principle that you come to know in your head or that you tap into with your life and now all of a sudden life works. Or truth isn't like our secular culture might tell us is something that you have to deep de- dig in deep inside yourselves and find your own unique version of it. Truth is deposited in a person. And so to know that truth that will set you free and lead you into life and to full is to know this Jesus and to enter into relationship with him. And how does that happen? It's by his grace. Again, it's not that I can work my way towards that. It's not that I can have enough ingenuity or creativity or brilliance that I can get my ducks intellectually aligned and and find my way. It's by his grace. Man is born not by the will of the flesh, flesh and blood, but by the will of the spirit and by the will of that creator. Which is all to say, maybe as the closing point, that if you find yourself searching and wrestling and you find yourself curious about Jesus, at the end of the day, it's coming before him and asking him for help to believe, to see, to understand. There's this wonderful story in Mark where Jesus is um, he's traveling with the crowds And there's a father there, and his boy is tormented by an evil spirit that causes him to have all sorts of convulsions and do all these terrible things or whatever. And he comes to Jesus, and he pleads with Jesus, Jesus, if you are able, would you heal my son? And Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. And you remember what the guy says to him? He says, I believe, (laughs) and would you help my unbelief? Right? And that's the prayer that should flow daily off the lips of any follower of Jesus. Lord, I believe. I believe you are the pathway to life, and I am believing into you and trying to entrust my life. But man, would you help my unbelief? Because I am caught up in all of these currents that would convince me that life is found deep within myself. Or I am wandering around the darkness and all these pathways to meaningful life. So I need you to help my unbelief. And similarly... If you're curious and you're searching and you're on this quest for life and you're curious about this Jesus and maybe as you have gotten to know him a little bit or if you've learned of him, you find yourself strangely curious about him or warm towards the idea of him at the end of the day too. It's, it's, I don't know, crossing that step as an act of humility where I say at the end of the day, I need you and your grace to do what you do and to enter into the darkness and to pull me out. And so there, you know, that's, that's John 1. It's my attempt of just speaking one last time into this question. You know, my, my, uh, my challenge to anybody who would be searching, who is curious, 
Really, it's three things. It's one, it's question your own assumptions about life. Question the assumptions that you have about life. Questions where those came from, how you got to question the assumptions that you have been ingrained with or that multi-billion dollar marketing industries have tried to convince you that this is what life about or that social media and all its rules for how you post on social media every day would convince you that life is about. Question those assumptions. Question those assumptions with as much enthusiasm as you question Christianity or Christ. And question whether or not the life and the world that is being built off of those assumptions is not, at the end of the day, one that you are unfit to live in, one that might be weary and tiresome and burdensome. So question your assumptions. Consider Jesus and consider him on his own terms. Immerse yourselves in the four Gospels, the four stories of Jesus. Follow Jesus as he is going about revealing himself and telling them who his father is. Follow Jesus as he is sharing truth and teaching people on the hillside. Follow Jesus as he is challenging and convicting Pharisees or the political and the religious establishment and and challenging them. Or follow Jesus as he is having compassion on little boys who are sick or widows or those who are often outcast and overlooked by society. Follow Jesus all the way up to that hill on Calvary where he is stretching out his arms and he's dying on a cross for you. Right? Follow this Jesus today into the community of faith. Right? Immerse yourself as people who are filled with the Spirit and can minister that Spirit of Christ to you. Follow Jesus into a community where the word of Jesus is preached and worshipped and celebrated. Again, on his own terms, right? So question your assumptions, follow Jesus, on, like explore Jesus, get to know Jesus on his own terms. And then three, it's consider humbling yourself, right? Consider this radical claim that faith and life is all gift. It's all grace, which sounds wonderful, but also can be a little bit insulting because it means that I can't work to it, I can't attain to it, I can't achieve it on my own, but I have to, in humility, throw myself at the mercy of my Creator for help. Pray that prayer. Lord, I want to believe. Help my own belief. And for all of us, right, again, I think a similar thing applies. Question the assumptions that sometimes we inherit from the broader culture. Question them daily. Question them daily to find out where maybe they don't connect with what I understand about Jesus and what he calls me to. Question them to see maybe where they are leading me astray from the rich and full life that Jesus is calling me to. And remember as well, as we go, as Peter would remind the church that is scattered throughout the Roman Empire that they are, in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are, you are his chosen possession, his royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, so that you might declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what it means to be his own possession. That's what it means to be his royal possession, his royal priesthood. It means that you now have an occupation. You now have a purpose in this kingdom to declare the excellencies wherever you go of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. My prayer for all of us is that this Jesus would then lead us according to his purpose, according to his good, wise, compassion, and loving plan, that he would lead us into life to the full.
And we ask that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.